Thank you. Um, can I tell you a joke? I know jokes always don't, when you have different groups of people from different backgrounds and things, they don't always communicate. But I heard this joke, I don't know, 40 years ago. And I laughed then. I think it's still kind of funny. Um, so a little girl went to Sunday school. Okay. And she came home from Sunday school. And she said to her, her mother, she said, Mommy, she says, the Sunday school teacher told us that God is everywhere. Is that right? And the mother was being very patient. She said, yes, dear, I, I think it is. And the little girl says, really? Everywhere? Does that mean that Jesus is in our city? And the mother said, yes, dear, I think it is. And the little girl says, does that mean he's on our street? And the mother said, yes, dear. By this time, the mother was not really paying attention. She was just sort of yes, dearing. And the little girl goes, is he in our house? Well, yes, dear, he must be. And the little girl goes, is he in this room? And the mother said, yes, yes, he's in this room. And the little girl says, is he in my cup? And the mother says, yes, dear. And the little girl goes, got him. <laughs> um, she kind of took the lesson a little more literally than it probably had been intended. I mean, in, in, in some sense, she did get him, but she didn't really get him, right? Uh, and that's kind of what's going on in the passage that we uh, are at today. Uh, if I could get the, today's passage up on the, on the screen. Uh, this follows immediately after the, uh, the sermon from uh, last week and a couple weeks ago that, where Jesus had cleaned the temple. And sort of the immediate question that the Jewish leaders had when this happened was, who do you think you are? Right? You do this. And so they asked him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do this? He'd given them lots of signs already, and just the fact that he had cleaned out the temple was in itself a pretty big sign. But Jesus answered them, when you destroy this temple, I will raise it up again in three days. And uh, the next part of it, they replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. Are you going to raise it up in three days? But the temple Jesus had spoken about was his body. Again, his disciples later remembered what he had said. That was after he had been raised from the dead. Then they believed the scripture. They also believed the words that Jesus had spoken. So we, we have this really interesting thing in that it has both a literal meaning and it has a metaphorical meaning that, you know, we know because the uh, Apostle John tells us, you know, oh yeah, afterward, after everything had happened, uh, we realized this was what he was talking about. But at the time, the uh, disciples were right there listening to this. And at the time, just like the priest, they had no idea that's what he was talking about. They were thinking about the literal meaning. 
And the literal meaning was very, very hard for them because so much of their life as Jews centered around the temple, right? The temple was the center of their worship. When the temple had been destroyed a few hundred years before and people had been hauled off into exile in Babylonia, they, they mourned the fact that it was gone. They thought they couldn't even worship God anymore because of this. And one of the lessons that they had to learn while they were in exile was that, in fact, they could worship God anywhere. But at the moment that it happened, it was the greatest tragedy that they, they could think of befalling. And now they had this brand spanking new temple that... King Herod had been building for them, started building for them uh, during his lifetime, and now his son was continuing to build on it. Um, has anybody been to Jerusalem, by the way, and seen some of the stones that are left from the temple? All that's left now is, is the retaining wall around the temple platform. But some of those stones weigh over 100 tons. You imagine that, moving stones that weigh over 100 tons with nothing but muscle and horsepower. Well, maybe some other animals too. Uh, it, it's amazing feat of engineering. We often think that, that people then weren't as smart as us because they didn't have as cool of stuff as we do, like all the sound equipment on the stage, right? But in fact, they were pretty smart too. And I think it was a lot harder to move something like that when you didn't have all the equipment as it would be to move it today. And Jesus was saying this magnificent building, this wonder of the world that uh, Jews everywhere paid for its upkeep in the temple tax, and that when other nations talked about how great they were, you know, the Jews could say, yeah, but what about our temple?" And everybody knew what an amazing place it was. And Jesus is saying, tear it down. And then I'll rebuild it in three days. They were a little bit upset. I think it must have even bothered the disciples a lot. We're not, we're not told, but it was a pretty wild thing to say. And, in fact... When Jesus is eventually tried before his crucifixion, it appears to be the main thing that they had against him. The main reason that they were uh, trying him was that they were claiming he had attacked the temple. Can we go to the next uh, verse? Um, there's some missing. There should be more of Mark, is what I'm... Ah. Back one. Okay. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for something to use against Jesus. They wanted to put him to death, but they did not find any proof. Many witnesses lied about him, but their stories did not agree. Then the next one. Then some of them stood up. 
Here's what those false witnesses said about him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made by human hands. That's the final charge against him, for which he is crucified. It was such a significant thing that then a short while later, when the uh, apostle Stephen is put on trial, just that he talked about Jesus talking about this was enough of a charge for them. So go to the Acts one, please. They arrested Stephen and brought him to the Sanhedrin. They found some people who were willing to tell lies. The false witnesses said, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place, meaning the temple. Next one. Oh, again, we seem to have lost part of one. Well, anyway, they say, you know, he talks about this Jesus who said he was going to tear down the temple is, is the rest of that, that verse. So it was enough to make this, this claim was enough to get Jesus executed and to get Stephen executed. And by the way, when Stephen is, is being stoned to death, there's a guy named Saul there who agrees with the decision and is holding their coats. And we'll get to Saul in a second, right? So they really thought that the temple was the most important thing. After all, didn't God live there? You know, like the little girl who thought she had him in a cup? They thought they had him there. We do it too, though, don't we? And we show some pictures. Look at that magnificent church. Oh, look at that one. We have any more? Oh, I recognize that. That's St. Mark's. When you see these, what do you say? And what is it? What do people think when they see it? It's a church, right? That's the church. Some people even say that's where God lives. Just like the Jews were doing. It's... uh, Interesting, by the way, that uh, the word that is translated church in our New Testament didn't actually mean that, (laughs) right? The word that gets translated church is the word ekklesia, which means the gathering, the fellowship, literally, and, and it gets translated church now. The word church goes back to something, it wasn't until about 300 AD when uh, and when Constantine came and the church was legalized that they started talking about buildings at all, right? And they started calling those buildings the house of the Lord. And the word Lord in Greek is kyrios. And it's from Curious, we get the word, passes through German and 
Celtic and everything. And for instance, in Scotland, it's Kirk, and it ends up as the word church. But it didn't even exist until 300 years after Jesus. And today, when people drive down the street and they see a church building, they say, oh, that's the church. That's not the church. What's the church? That's the church, right? We are the church. The fellowship, the gathering, the body of Jesus gathered together. And guess what? When we're not gathered together, we're still the church. We're the church scattered, but we're still the church. If you know people who say, you know, I, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I don't go to church. Doesn't mean they're not part of the church. They may not be a very functional part of the church, but they're still part of the church. We are the church when we are gathered. We are the church when we are scattered. This is not anything new, right? Within a few years of... Uh, Standing at Stephen's stoning, Saul has become Paul, and uh, he's talking about Jesus to the Athenians. Uh, can we go to the last slide? It says, as I walked around, I looked carefully at the things you worship. I even found an altar to an unknown God written on it, and I am going to tell you about this unknown God. He is, where'd he go? He is the God who made the world. He also made everything in it. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in temples built by hands. He is not served by human hands. He doesn't need anything. So the disciples, the apostles got this. They figured it out pretty, pretty darn quick, right? We don't need the building. Right? The building is... It's pretty. It's nice to look at. But that's not where God lives. And God kind of emphasized that when at Jesus' crucifixion, we're told that the giant curtain that blocked off the Holy of Holies, which was like 12 stories tall, Holy of Holies, that this curtain hanging down over 100 feet and inches thick, was torn in half from top to bottom. Why from top to bottom? Well, because if it had been torn by people, it would have started at the bottom and gone up, right? But it started at the top and then tore to the bottom. God had used the temple, had used the tabernacle since the time of Moses to communicate with his people. It was more like God's cell phone than his house. And with the crucifixion of Jesus, no longer. Instead, we get Pentecost, which we just celebrated last week, when tongues of fire descended not just in the temple, but on everyone, on all believers. Uh, we went from a landline to cell phones, right? Everybody has one. Because of Pentecost, the birthday of the church, 
the birthday of us as the fellowship of the church. It's a clean separation from thinking. Up, we live in the building. Now, the church is the us. We are the building that God is building. So that's the literal part of it that we take into account, right? It was a time they thought that that God really lived in their building and that the building was the most important thing. And we see now that, of course, it isn't. But then there's the metaphorical thing, which to John was probably the main thing, which is why he added what he added to it. When Jesus said this, he wasn't just talking about the literal. He was talking about himself. He was prophesying his own death and his own resurrection. That implies some really big things to us, right? When you stop, and this is where we start talking about the theme of the scriptures of the sermon series, free your mind. Okay? He knows the ending already. The journey for him to the cross is not a series of accidents. It's not, what a tragedy. Think what Jesus might have accomplished if he'd only lived, which I've heard people say, by the way. Uh, It's the destination he knew he was headed for all along. But he knew that it was worth it to go that way even though he knew all of the pain and all of the horror that awaited him. And, you know, we, we talk so much about Jesus dying for our wrongs and our sins and our mistakes that it, it becomes an easy thing to say and we, we don't stop to think about it. But it's basically that there on the cross, Jesus is bearing the weight of every pain that has ever been felt by anyone, anywhere. That's also a very freeing thing for us, by the way, because we can't ever really say, oh, nobody knows how bad I feel. Because in fact, Jesus does. He felt exactly what you were feeling. That was part of the pain, part of the suffering uh, that he was bearing on the cross the result of every mistake that has ever been made in human history or ever will be made. And so he does know. Nobody knows like he knows. But we also know that he thought it's worth it. It's worth it. The writer of Hebrews says to us, you know, for the joy that was set before him, he went and endured the cross. The resurrection that he's talking about, that this is the first place in John that he's prophesying the resurrection when he talks about tear down this building in three days, it'll be raised up. Was such a so much of a greater good than all of the suffering of the cross 
Um, I mean, it's purely speculation on his part, but I love the imagery that, uh, that C.S. Lewis uses in his book, The Great Divorce. He says, you know, the, if you took all the sin and pain and suffering in the world and rolled it up into one little ball, the smallest butterfly in heaven could eat it and not get indigestion. It is, there is no comparison between the goodness of God and everything that we can do wrong. And But it's enough to destroy us unless we're rescued. The other thing that this then goes to as freeing our minds is that because of the resurrection, because Jesus is resurrected, we are promised that we too will be resurrected. And it is that hope of the resurrection that we are given that is the most freeing thing, I think, of all. That no matter what comes, we can face it, we can endure it because of the hope of the resurrection. I speak uh, with some sort of immediate knowledge of that in that I've spent much of the last couple months um, at my sister's bedside as she died. And uh, I don't think I could have done it without knowing that because she knew Jesus, that she was waiting for her resurrection. And so now that it's done, I feel lost. I miss my sister. But I, she is not lost. I feel lost, but she is not lost. Right? I know that, uh, in fact, the pain that I feel is for myself and for the rest of the family. It's not for her. Um, and I, I have that hope as I look to the end of my own life, however soon or far away it might be, that uh, I can think about it. I can... I can endure talking about it because I have the hope of the resurrection too. And that is the most liberating piece of all. It is, I think, as we look at this passage, the application that I would encourage all of you to to take with you as you go. That even as Jesus is prophesying his own resurrection, he is, he is setting us up. He is letting us know this is coming. It's not an accident. This is all a part of the plan, and you are a part of the plan too. If you know Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus, you may share in his death, but you will also share in his resurrection. And it's worth it. Um. Ultimately, the journey may be fearful, but where we end up is not. 